The 8th Annual Men's Gathering is happening at Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 21st through the 24th. Join other Christian men for a relaxing weekend of fellowship, feasting, and fun of every kind. Men will learn how to resist tyranny and how to have a good conscience as fathers, men of the church, and citizens from our main speaker, Dr. Kuntz. He'll guide everyone there through scripture and church history as we seek to live as free men. Check out our website at www.mensgathering.us for more information and to register. You can also search Men's Gathering on Facebook for updates leading up to the event. It is going to be a wonderful weekend for men to relax in God's beautiful creation. The timely topic will be an encouragement and provide much-needed strength as we go to battle against the powers of this world. We hope you'll join us for the 2022 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the Saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Dr. Kuntz, who are the managers? The managers are the people that are going to be observably propping up the regime of which we have so often spoken very obviously in many different ways. 
maybe by tacit approval, maybe by full-throated support, maybe by enforcement of regime priorities. So that's going to change at any given time. As we talked about last week, they may be very deeply concerned about Vladimir Putin's incursions into the Ukraine. But, you know, 15 months ago, they were very deeply concerned about the fact that you were not vaccinated. So it will shift pretty drastically because a manager fundamentally has no particular ideology except the continuance of the regime. So this is observably the case in somebody like Joseph Biden, who's been around so long that he was he was against busing back in the early 1970s, which you know basically means busing black kids into white public schools. He's been for assorted uh, Clinton crime bills in the 1990s, but now he's for you know transgenderism in the military and you know appointing a strong black woman to the Supreme Court and stuff. He's a he's a really good example in his own person because he's been around so long. You can see the drastic shifts in tone, priority, issues, public position in someone like that because he's been around so I mean he's been around so long everything has shifted essentially hey, in American hey, political hey, life. Whatever I need to say to get elected, I'm <laughs> gonna say it. And the yeah. higher I can rise, the better. Yeah. And I, I I think that that was that's a piece of cynicism that is so easy. I mean and it and it's so common that words like politics and rhetoric that are honorable disciplines worthy of discussion in ancient Athens are just, there are cynical meanings attached to them in modern American English. Well, that's just, he's just playing politics or that's just rhetoric. And the reason we say that is because we assume that managerial stooges with no particular attachment to anything except their own positioning, that that's like normal or has to be the case or is natural or obvious. And this is neither historically true nor metaphysically necessary, but it seems obvious to us that people like Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi, who's very similar. I mean, think about the fact that Nancy Pelosi's dad helped get JFK elected. Okay. That's how old Nancy Pelosi is. And he was mayor of Baltimore at the time. And so, you know, <laughs> they, they profit enormously. They have nothing that they particularly believe. And to some degree, that, that is why Democrats have been over the past 50 years so much more, I think, successful in a purely political sense than Republicans, because they have grasped how our system actually works, which is it involves the maintenance of power. It does not involve any particular ideological attachments, right? 30 years ago, you could, you could very easily be against abortion publicly as a Democrat. Can't really do that anymore. Can't be very openly against transgenderism as a Democrat, but there are other options open to you that you didn't used to have, say economically. So AOC can exist. So, you know, I mean, those things are going to shift, right? The things that, uh, that normal people think of as either this is true or this is a lie, the manager thinks of as this is expedient or this is inexpedient. And when you think about it that way, you realize that the issue isn't with Joe Biden or politics for all time everywhere or rhetoric for all time everywhere. It's with the way that our regime functions, as do so many others. 
similar processes could be tracked in all kinds of leaders all over the world. So let's invert that then and move from I hate managers being what people should say when they say I hate <laughs> politics, right? And yeah. say, why should we love politics? We should love politics because we are made to be, we are, as Aristotle says, political animals. And what he means by that is not that we have a certain amount of time that we spend on politico.com every day. He means that, you know, and some of us do, right? <laughs> some of us, uh, maybe me, I don't know. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, not more than Politico, so yeah. Yeah, there you go. But that we are we are made for public life. And this is this is historically much more true of men than women. So that is also why in opposition to the notion of managers, I have been discussing fathers. And this, this is something that you will find all over wisdom, both pagan and Christian, is that men are made for public life in the way that women are made for private life. And those spheres are not completely mutually exclusive in the sense that um, you know, men just have nothing to say about what happens in the family or something, but that men, because they are made for combat, are also made for political decision-making. Not everyone on the same level, but everyone on some level, whether it is your village or your county or whatever it is. So because of that, saying, well, I'm not going to be involved is fine until something actually happens that matters. So what I would say, if you're not involved in politics, and I, and I don't even just mean like your, your school board or your homeowners association or your county or, or your church or your church body, that's fine. But you have to understand that your apathy is a luxury, right? People that are not involved in politics in the ancient world, for example, are people who are so wealthy, they don't even live somewhere that they're citizens, Okay, so they're they're wealthy merchants and they live in Athens, but they're not citizens. So they're not really involved in political decision making because they can't be. Okay, but that doesn't matter for their own well-being, but they're also not at home. If you are at home anywhere, your own family, your own church, your own county, your own state, whatever, if you're at home somewhere, then you have a responsibility to take part. Shirking that is a luxury that you're enjoying. So just take an example that some of the readers, readers, listeners are, I'm sure, familiar with. You can tell what I spend most of my time working with books, but they're, they're probably familiar with the idea of a church that, let's say, doesn't participate at all with any other church, even if it's in a denomination or if, it, if it's not in a denomination, you know, whatever, it could be Lutheran, it could be anything. The, that's, that, all of that is fine until you need a new pastor. Hmm. Then you say, well, where are you going to get a pastor from? We can say, well, we're just going to make our own pastor. Okay, that's fine. How do you determine who's going to be a pastor? And then, and then you also have to think, are we ever going to start another church out of this church? Or are we just going to like, we're going to exist in and of and for ourselves all the time forever only, and we'll produce our own pastors and it'll just be fine. And the problem is eventually the church will either migrate like the Judean churches that get persecuted out of Jerusalem or it will multiply, hopefully, God willing, and then you'll have another church and you'll have to decide, well, who's going to be the pastor there? So the capacity to be apathetic about political life in a church, let's say in a family, what is going on in the family? Do the mother and the father actually discuss what's happening in the family and figure out what to do about it? 
as the children get older, are they involved in the, you know, the governing of the family at all? And I don't, that doesn't have to be formal. It could be like, you know, you need to take care of this littler kid or whatever your apathy about your County, your state, that's a luxury that's abnormal. So asking you to be involved in political life is asking you, especially obviously if you're a man, you know, literally to be a father, to be involved, but it's also saying like, don't live a life of luxury. In fact, you can't most of the time and don't be surprised when you can participation and mixing it up in public life is normal and, and healthy. It's not, you know, something that you do because you're a career politician or you're greedy or something, right? Um, you do it because public life exists. So non-involvement in political life locally is a luxury of the wealthy. It is also <clears throat> the standard normalcy of slavery. And so how yeah. these kind of become yeah, closer right. than you realize right now uh, yep. is really important. Yeah. 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 No, that's excellent. Because a, because a slave doesn't get to, right? The wealthy man might want to, but just doesn't care. That's probably most of us until 2020. The slave doesn't get to. He has no say. <laughs> he, he doesn't even have self-government, let alone local government. So if you want that, go for it, but just realize that you're, you're getting, you're getting no, probably nothing in return. I mean, the, this is where a distinction between slavery and say serfdom as it existed in medieval Europe is helpful because there are always grades of these things. And it could be realistic to say most people can't do much more than self-government. Maybe. Depends on your understanding of human nature, your judgments about human capacities and, and willingness to do more than, you know, make sure that you brush your own teeth every day. That's fine. At least the serf gets to make decisions about how and when he plants his crops. Okay. The slave probably doesn't. Someone else tells him, someone else drives him on his own time. And these depend on arrangements. So serfdom could end up looking more like slavery, obviously, depending. But the slave is told what to do and when. And this is where when you're, you're reading the managerial revolution, you will come across a, a suggestion that probably is not terribly striking to our listeners, probably sounded a little more radical in 1941. America is still a largely agricultural nation in 1941. But Burnham's suggestion that most wage earners are functionally what the ancient world would call slaves because everything about their life, especially their time, is determined by someone who is paying them, which is the means by which they stay alive. Yeah, that's, that's exactly that, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so management is the management, it, it, it is the, the capacity of oversight that is very literally in the ancient world, a capacity for governing farm workers who are almost undoubtedly in the ancient world slaves on, a, on an operation large enough to need an overseer. So this is whatever your imagination about the antebellum American South is, this is in an ancient context, very obviously slavery. It, it has a different set of trappings in the modern world, but it is, it is slavery. So I have another connection uh, that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, to make clear, but I'm going to try. Uh, so 
the distinction between luxury and slavery in the modern world is not as far as you would think. In yeah, fact, they've right. convinced us that slavery is a luxury. And right. then what comes of this is you mentioned the person who has great wealth. Uh, maybe they have two, three, five homes. The place they live is not a place that really is their home. Hence, they're not involved mm-hmm. in local politics. And then the slave also then is a person who's really homeless in a sense. And that that is distinguishable from yep. the serf. And I think mm-hmm. that maybe is a really important way to see that uh, that distinction. Um, so having no home then would make a person uh, less what um, uh, emotionally driven to defend because yeah, it's, that's it's right. not yeah. there to defend and thus they're less pressed to be active in any kind of public life um, in that way then uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to draw at is that well we're slaves <laughs> And that's why we don't want to be involved in politics, is, is we've right. already accepted that there is no defense we can mount. We don't need to mount a defense. Someone else will do it for us, or we'll just, I don't know. No, no one's really thought that far ahead until two years ago. We're also going to die, is what's no, going right. to happen. Yeah. Right, because, I mean, you could say, okay, well, you could you could belong to the land, either because you're the owner of the land, historically in American politics. You are the owner of some piece of land. It's not that hard to own land. There's a lot of it on this continent. We have the whole extent of the continent between certain latitudes, get some land. Or you are, and this is this is very classically, especially in times of war, you owe loyalty to a man, right? This is why the character of the leader is so important and why <laughs> I love, I mean, I, I, I love this insight from, from Burnham. And, and Burnham is really a disciple of Machiavelli, whom we will discuss in a revisionist way another time. But the insight here is that the leader must possess boundless self-confidence and energy (laughs) because only someone who seems preternaturally confident can inspire the loyalty in other men that is requisite for war. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the assertion because Burnham, Burnham will be used. And I, I want to talk about this history maybe later in the in the hour, depending on where you'd like to go, Jonathan, I, uh, of kind of American conservatism. I'm just personally interested because of my own, my own life and involvement with it. But, but also because Burnham, Burnham and is not is not being used like American conservatism historically is not just the assertion like get off my lawn. It's it's not actually atomistic, and it's it's really is a distortion of American history to say that Americans are all about quote rugged individualism, and we're all going it alone. That that was never true. That wasn't how we organized. See how Washington soldiers, Lee's soldiers, Jackson soldiers, Patton soldiers talk about their general in a time of war. It is loyalty to a man, okay, and that is requisite, especially for enormous sacrifice. So. There is something honorable about that. Not everyone is his own leader all of the time in every situation, but he is defending something, his country, his land, his people, to which he has loyalty that doesn't involve wages or remuneration. And especially in times of great sacrifice, he is loyal to a man. There is a loyalty on their journeys to Lewis and Clark personally. That is needed Slaves have neither. They are owned by a man, but they may not know who he is, nor do they have any land. So like you said, and that's extremely perceptive, they are dispirited. They they are basically apathetic because loyalty isn't even in them to command. 
So left turn, perhaps. Um, I want to get to your notes, but I want to not miss this. Yeah. I feel like I would miss an opportunity if I didn't ask this. I'm not sure there is a connection at all, honestly. Um, so we're dealing with manager versus father. We're dealing with the regime of management and the zeitgeist of uh, politics being the oversight of stories to keep the status quo of power where it is and technologies, namely money, uh, being one of those major stories. Right. If I didn't bring up the shrewd manager, I feel like I would, again, just kind of miss a connection point here because here you have a parable <laughs> in the Bible about a manager and money. And so uh, I don't yeah. know, is, is there an easy connection or or not? So the, the shrewd manager understands what the future is going to be, right? The shrewd manager is a realist. Our managers are not realists. So that is also why so often they are hysterical rather than shrewd. I have been particularly embarrassed by our rhetoric surrounding the situation in Ukraine because it is, it's hectoring, it's harping, it's, it's kind of, it's characteristic of the nagging wife in Proverbs, who's like a dripping in the corner of the house continually, but it's ineffectual, right? Which is, which is why the Taiwanese are so worried because like Ukraine, Taiwan and its existence are guaranteed as American client states. And if we're not willing to defend the one, why would we be willing to defend the other? Now, I mean, I have, I have some kind of counter arguments to what I just said, but the basic logic is the same. You know, Americans will not come to the rescue. That is not how we have sounded. We have hectored, we have berated. We've even called them in this kind of, you know, school, public school HR lingo, bullies. They're bullies. They're bullying us. They're bullying our allies. And that rhetoric is passive. It's, it's harping. It's very feminized. That's, that's both because, you know, probably of our, uh, you know, 32 year old cat ladies working at Langley, working day and night to preserve the integrity of the central intelligence agency. But it is also because we are not actually projecting strength. I don't just mean projecting in our public image. I mean, also in our, our forces, right? So we, we have had Florida and California National Guard advisors rotating in and out of Ukraine and Poland for, for years. What are we doing with those people? I mean, I don't, I don't want us to be involved in war there. I'm, all I'm saying is we are not speaking in accord with our own actions. So what that tells me when there is such a gap between our speech and our actions and even one speech on one day and another speech on another day, walking it back, then what we have is a kind of multiple personality disorder in our own regime. And there are a certain number of factors that Burnham identifies as characteristic of systems, regimes, social organ orders when they are on the verge of collapse. One is mass unemployment, which <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the reality of any of our economic statistics is. So I don't want to hazard a guess today on <laughs> whether we do or don't have mass unemployment, because you know as well as I do that after a while, they just stop counting if you've been seeking a job for too long and, and they can't or don't gauge how many people have just dropped out of seeking a job exactly. So I don't want to gauge that. But another one of these is when you, you get consistent political rhetoric 
from the people in charge of a regime that no longer motivates. So an example of this that we've already looked at, and we can look at America now, but one that we've already looked at is the rhetoric of democracy and preserving our constitutional republic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in Germany in the 20s and the very early 1930s. Obviously, nobody believed it <laughs> because the live political options, the things for which people are willing to fight on the street were, you know, broadly speaking, communism and broadly speaking, that what comes to power as national socialism is more broadly in German politics, national conservatism at the time. So if people aren't actually willing to die for something, then eventually it will be replaced in as a regime that may happen politically before it happens ideologically. It may happen ideologically before it happens politically. It, it may not be worked out thoroughly in the financial system of a country for a while. Who knows, right? But it will be replaced because it cannot any longer command loyalty. If we have a bunch of slaves, then the question is always, and this is a, this is a point in which Burnham is just regurgitating Machiavelli, slaves are always willing to rise up against tyranny because they may have no home, they may have no loyalties, they, they may be apathetic about local politics, but they know that they're not free, right? And that is where someone who is leading a political movement on a very small level or on a very large level is not, and I think, I think this is so insightful about leaders, generally speaking, Burnham says that guy is not inventing things. Okay. So this is, I think, part of the Hitler myth that we've discussed before, but you could apply it to Stalin. You could apply it to FDR. You could apply it to lots of people, including the ones Burnham does or doesn't discuss. He is not someone making up things out of whole cloth. He may be completely lying. Okay. In some aspect. Okay. Like we talked about with Wilson last week, lying about what his intentions were regarding what we now call the First World War, what was then called the Great War, the War in Europe. He may be totally lying, but he's not, he's not making things. People do not believe complete lies. They believe partial lies. So the things that are not lies about the rhetoric of a successful leader are pulling on something inside of them that they feel deeply is true. And the slave, whatever else he knows or doesn't know, knows very deeply that he has a slave and he hates it on some level. That's why slave owners always fear slave revolts because they and the slaves are well aware that no one particularly wants to be a slave. Okay, so the reason that I think our regime is effective still and gets people to turn on a dime from oh, those truckers, they're destroying everything too. Oh, those Russians, they're destroying Ukraine. I love Ukraine so much. I now say K-Y-I-V, even though I didn't know that K-I-E-V was even a place. And now I'm very insistent that it must be spelled K-Y-I-V as the capital of Ukraine. And I'm a Ukrainian patriot by proxy. Okay. The reason that happens is because that person is basically physically comfortable in a way that a slave in ancient Italy is not. And so he may realize, and that this is what so many people have realized in the past years, he may eventually realize 
that he is under the, the boot of a tyrant, but because of the comfort of his everyday existence, he doesn't feel that. And so it cannot be called upon as a political force right, right, right. now. Would, he, yeah. Would- which is where the opioid crisis, not exactly, but kind of, is so much an issue because whether or not uh, it is yeah. the actual yeah. opioid crisis or the rise of alcoholism in the last two years or the Netflix binging that continues to be a way to escape or what yeah. have you, yeah. you, the power of the current medication to keep you going in slavery saying I'm not a slave yeah. is right. unique in world history. You're Yeah. You're, you're totally right. There, there are certain things about us that, I mean, Burnham obviously doesn't foresee. He doesn't need to be a prophet of everything in 1941. But his, his prescience, I think, is very good in the sense that if, the, if you can reduce political problems to management problems, then you no longer have to ask two things that are kind of classic questions, not only in American politics, but in politics generally. One is, how do I handle the fact that some people are slaves? Okay. If I can create enough illusions through media and certain basic standards of living that this person is, has no self-government. I mean, he doesn't even have self-government on the level of, you know, his, his biochemistry, right? Let alone his family, because I can turn his son into a girl, let alone his school, let alone his county, let alone his nation. Okay. He has no self-government and that, that is becoming true on a biochemical level for the average American in a way that it wasn't before pharmaceuticals were the stuff of everyday life for most people. Right. If that's, if that's true, then I no longer have to really worry very much about the idea that he is a slave or that he's going to find that out in any regard. Okay. When, when I take away his play money, when he gives to the truckers, more people are going to find out, right? So whatever the trucker convoy achieved or didn't achieve, what it has achieved is a revelation of the nature of our managers that for many people, I think, I think some people, and even some people that listen to the show, and I, I sympathize with them, although I can't say I, I get it because I wasn't exactly there ever. Just, you know, we, we all have different kind of life paths that, that we've been given. But I get it that you're shocked by this because many of you were told you were free. I mean, it, you know, the president of the United States, and then in addition, with a certain smarmy self-righteousness over against us, the prime minister of Canada, these are leaders of the free world. These are leaders of the free world. So by definition, people within the borders of their nation states are free. Okay. Even if they don't have freedom of association, even if they're taxed exorbitantly for the benefit of other people's children, whatever else is going on, these are leaders of the free world. So no longer do you even have to sort of pretend if you can give them Netflix and medication and, and enough carbs you don't even have to pretend to be worried about the fact that they're not free. Yeah. And at, and at this point, they're not even pretending like I will take away your play money if you give it to the wrong cause. The other thing that you don't have to worry about, and this is, this is not so much an ancient political insight as, as a, as a problem, particularly within American politics, you no longer have to worry about the fact that they don't really have a say. Okay. So like directly in any sense, you don't have to pretend that the elections are, 
anything particularly. And I will be going into this later. This is kind of a where am I right now? Just telling you, telling you, I have a deep suspicion that, and I, I will, we'll do this later. I mean, later in the year, not even like in the next couple of months, I have a deep suspicion that the notion of a blue state is in many cases unreal, not just because of, you know, election issues with voting machines, but also because what, what, what you're asking me it to agree with, if I say, yeah, California has been a blue state since 1992, is that you go from a state where the LAPD like invents modern policing, including SWAT teams, in order to control the populace. <laughs> and, and you're asking me to believe that that state that like votes overwhelmingly for Ronald Reagan flips within eight years to being overwhelmingly in favor of anything left wing that you can possibly think of. I, I don't, I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. So the idea that elections are unreal predates, you know, electronic voting machines being widespread. And I'm, and I'm skeptical. I'm very skeptical about them. We saw revelations of such things, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin in 2020. But long before that, right? Long before that, there has always been cynicism, especially about machine politics in major cities. But aside from that, even the pretense that these things matter at all, even in an American system where the executive is answerable to the populace in a way that it's not in a you know Westminster parliamentary system like Canada directly. So those, those two questions, the nature of slavery generally and then more particularly to our political tradition, the idea that you have a say, I, we, our, our, our regime has increasingly abandoned the illusion that those are even valid questions. And that, that is a change, the openness with which they have abandoned those things. They, they used to pretend much more thoroughly, maybe, that those, those two things were real questions. Well, to go back just a few moments here, yeah, and I, I agree with you. I, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this going forward because, um, I, yeah, I agree with you on the electioneering thing and uh, the cynicism that I heard with some regularity regularity when I moved in the Illinois area, Greater Chicago, extremely Greater Chicago area, um, was almost a nostalgic cynicism. Like the dead vote in South Chicago is sort of like our favorite old joke. Like this has yeah. been an old, old joke and like right. nobody seems to care and we just all accept it as natural and normal. Um, right. So so how much of this though, can I say, is that um, the reason we accept it is because the hysteria, you mentioned the hysterical managers, um, the hysteria is so consistently capable of distracting us from having a real local conversation, not just like yeah. at a dinner table, but like right. ongoing over several years about what we are, who we are, what we do. Let's lay plans in the dirt, build a foundation and move. It's how can you do that when it's squirrel there, Ukraine here, back and forth, yeah. COVID, blah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because, and this is, this is where a book I think I've recommended before, The Boss by Mike Royko about I Richard. I, I looked at it last night. I almost picked it up, but oh, I went for fantasy so fiction instead. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. I mean, it, it's really well written and just just kind of a, a pleasure. The the issue there is that every every political system is going to have vices. There's 
simply no question. Um, if you are a realist, certainly if you're a Christian, one of your basic insights is that government is better than no government and that every estate, including government, will be flawed. That's fine. Machine politics, especially in big cities, Chicago, Tammany Hall in Manhattan, there's a political machine for basically every city of any size in the United States. And where there isn't a city machine, there is historically a state machine. And there's probably both. So, you know, any, any given state is going to be like that, no matter how rural, actually. That is the way that democratic politics function. Okay. That has its own vices. There is a certain unreality about, you know, the independence of the individual voter in that thing. As, a, as an agglomeration of voters, there, it's not unreal. And there's going to be cheating in voting. That has always been the case. There are other vices for monarchical forms of government. There are other vices for different, different kinds of oligarchy. Okay. The issue that we're talking about is not even about political structures. So it's not even like, okay, well, let's, let's get rid of democracy and then we're going to bring in this, or let's get rid of a Republican form of government and replace it with this other thing. And then we'll be fixed because the issue here is that if you read about really both dailies, but especially Richard J, the father, you'll find that he is responsive to and seeks to preserve the Chicago in which he grew up. So the neighborhoods get to govern themselves, okay? The different kinds of whites govern themselves. The Jews govern the Jews. The Irish govern the Irish. The Irish also <laughs> get to govern everybody else through the Democratic Party. The Republicans out in the, you know, at one time, you know, rural, now suburban parts of Cook County get to govern themselves. The Blacks get to govern themselves. This is even true with political machines in the American South in the time of Jim Crow, okay? There's a Democratic congressman today, Harold Ford from Memphis. His family got started in politics inside E.H. Crump's machine in Memphis, okay? So, it's responsive locally. It's not going to change everything. And that is part of the impatience of left-wing Democrats with traditional machine politics is that it is essentially conservative, not of anything ideologically specific, just whatever is the case that the voters want. It will conserve that. So it will conserve de facto segregation in Chicago and it will, it will, preserve the power of certain black families with legal segregation in Memphis in the 1920s. It is a conservative way of governing. Tammany Hall was not a left-wing organization in New York, specific to Manhattan, really the borough of Manhattan. So that's what it's going to do. It's not going to give you the capacity for what Burnham would call social revolution. Okay. It's not going to fundamentally reorder everything. So I mean, in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we have machine politics. That's the way it works. That's the way it's always worked. For sure. Okay. That is not necessarily, I think, evil. That right. is just the way polities so organized operate. A social revolution in our church would be, for example, a president that actually can tell individual congregations what to do. We're not organized for that, nor is our political functioning organized that way. We're organized in the way of kind of an old American polity. Some cities are still organized this way. A lot of them aren't. 
So we're kind of old fashioned in that way in Ameri- in just sheer American political terms. And that order is fairly responsive to local concerns. Potholes get filled. People don't have their neighborhoods disturbed, you know, and that's good and that's bad, depending on your views of what should be happening in a given neighborhood. But it is fairly conservative. And if you look at you, you just say, okay, well, in order to get ahead in life, I need to be a member of the Democratic Party. And then, you know, I'm going to get this contract. You can, okay, go ahead, say that that's corrupt. The other option is a quote merit system. Okay. The, and that always sounds theoretically better. And I'm a Theodore Roosevelt fan myself. The problem is merit systems also have people that pull strings. And we ostensibly have merit systems in in most levels of government in the United States now. What that has resulted in is simply a different level of nepotistic politics. So instead of being on a neighborhood basis, it's it could be on a racial basis. You know, you get more points on this civil service application because you're black, or it could be nepotism on some other basis. But you're going to have people making somebody's going to make decisions. The question is on what basis and traditional political machines in the United States make decisions on the basis of local political loyalties. That's why these kinds of things are going to be so unpopular with social revolutionaries, such as now control the Democratic Party in the United States, because those kinds of people don't care about what you think at UC Berkeley, because <laughs> that's that's not how we do things here in Chicago, right? Think about the fact that you have a Democratic mayor, you know, enforcing the destruction of hippie protesters and, and what are now called civil rights protesters, what was then understood as a basically racial move in the 1968 Democratic Convention. That's an intra-democratic fight. Theoretically, the way that a lot of people think that's a left-wing fight, well, no, it's not. That's a fight between actual revolutionaries and actual conservatives. And the conservatives all just happen, not at all happen, happen to be products of and defenders of this kind of machine politics, local political order. How does the time delay in the managerial revolution in the United States impact this now then? Yeah, the time delay is because we start out as a nation, as we mentioned last week, with a political order responsive to local concern because of how we're set up. Okay. So the way that that plays out is that we are not sufficiently urban or centralized to have managers. Okay. And you you can see this in all kinds of events. It's, it's why the South deals with significant pockets of unionist sentiment in Appalachia and the Ozarks. The reason being, those are people who don't want to be managed. That's why they live there. (laughs) They're not going to get rich and they don't want the planters to tell them what to do. The planters being the closest thing you get to managers in the Confederacy. So it's it's also why America doesn't have significant widespread labor strife or people thinking of themselves along class divisions in the United States outside specific pockets, mining towns, maybe urban, heavily urbanized areas, what, what's now the Rust Belt, what was then the wealthiest parts of America in the Northeast and the, and the upper Midwest are the only places where you get significant class-based political organization because people think of themselves as actually, and they are actually historically 
largely self-governing. The government barely exists in people's lives. I mean, the state government, let alone the national government, there is no income tax. There is no federal reserve. The government's not going to help you. (laughs) It barely exists as far as you're concerned. So those facts of American life and the fact that we are founded with this capitalistic, classically liberal political order means that we're on a time delay relative to Europe. Europe gets managerialized faster than we do. Russia even jumps directly from a a, a practically, practically feudal political order, much like Japan, directly to a managerial political order that's highly centralized government working in collusion with business in order to produce social cohesion and organization for nationally defined, managerially defined political goals. America is not like that. America has regions that have mutually conflicting goals that are democratically expressed. So, you know, the Southern Democratic Party doesn't exist for the same reason that Democrats exist in, say, the state of New York. The Republican Party is a little more organized nationally, but Republicans in Oregon have different views on, for instance, racial integration than Republicans in Massachusetts uh, down to the 1950s, 1960s. So all of those things are a result of America being both large, but also having, practically speaking, capacities for self-government and and a history of self-government that is very different from almost all other parallels existing in a place like Canada almost all other Western countries. So that means that when managerialism comes to us, it comes in a milder form than it will exist in say, you know, a labor party in Britain or the various forms of socialism, national or international in Germany, or certainly and very obviously in Russia, what becomes the Soviet Union. And when it comes, it's going to come as a new deal. And it won't, as we've talked about many times before, it will not present itself as a fundamental social revolution. This may require just out and out lying, okay? Like we talked about with Wilson, or when we get probably our biggest demographic change ever, which is the opening up to widespread non-European immigration after 1965, which we just, I mean, we we just didn't do that. We, We had never done that before. Intentionally, we had never done that before. We even repatriated enormous numbers of Mexicans, some of whom were American citizens legitimately in the 1930s. Okay, so the idea that America was a European majority country vastly was historically normal. 1965 is going to change us forever. We've talked about that. At the time, though, they will they will say Hart, Seller, President Johnson will say this is not going to change the United States. The United States is going to be a a white majority country forever, right? This is just normal. This isn't going to change anything. So even though, I mean, just really obviously that's not what's going to happen. It's an enormous market. It's a giant job market. Of course, people want to come here. That's why they're here, right? Since 1965. So it's going to change us. Everybody could see that very logically, but they trot out a young Ted Kennedy in 1965 to say this isn't going to change us. They, They will lie if they need to like really obviously lie. (laughs) The thing that they're not going to do is tell you in an American political context, they're not going to tell you we are overturning the American way of life, American government, American democracy, whatever. It's always, 
this is one of the ironies about the United States under the managerial system is that our managers will always present themselves as conserving our political traditions because they can be used well, right? They're useful. It's not like there was a feudal system that they had to just like replace in the case of you can never have an emperor of Germany again. We can't do that. We can't even have something that looks feudal, even if it wasn't. Okay. Our system, capital, a capitalistic, classically liberal order is useful to a managerial state, even when that managerial state will fundamentally reshape that order for its own benefit. It will keep the trappings because in the same way that we talked about bankers needing kings in order to come to power, managers need a, a classically liberal order in order to come to power, to have especially financial institutions, economic wherewithal to endure, right? The banks have to endure. They, the managers cannot live without the banks. So that classical liberal order is very useful. That's why we are always told that whatever is being done is being done because it's constitutional or it's in keeping with our best traditions or whatever the case may be. It makes me think of the recent uh, mansion, was it mansion issue where uh, they wanted to restructure voting and, you know, the sitting president who just won an election says that we'll never have safe voting again if you don't pass this new law. Right. (laughs) Right. And now I think even recently (laughs) it was uh, some of the, the statements are things like they're trying to take away the vote from blacks by not doing anything right. By keeping what we already have. Right. So in the name of what we already have, change it is sort of the (laughs) the market. right. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so there is, this, this is one of this is one of the ironies of life in America is that the people who are actually changing the most will will also present themselves as the heirs of the American political tradition. The figures will change. So this is kind of like if you want an emblem of this, think about the replacement of Andrew Jackson. I mean, ironically, on a Federal Reserve note, that was always ironic because he is the great enemy of the central bank. Okay, but replacement of Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill by Harriet Tubman. Okay, the the point here is that you take a figure and and this is usually the case is that you'll get this tremendous exaggeration. And you know this from textbooks, you know this from visiting any, you know, National Park Service thing that has historical component to it at all that's been renovated in the past 10 years. There will always be you'll, you'll always get the sense that in the past you know, there was like two black people, maybe three white-ish people, an, an American Indian, uh, several Hispanics, and maybe like a Chinese guy. And, and that's who lived in America in like 1921. You would, you would never get like a realistic sense of American demographics where whites are like 90 plus percent of all Americans at all times, as long as there's been an America. So you, you bring in figures that are now more useful, political classes that are part of those protected classes that are especially almost always reliable democratic voting blocks cap with a capital D you bring them in and they're now going to be the guarantors of this constitutional order, but we're going to say, this is the same nation. It's the same constitution. Sonia Sotomayor is, is, is ruling in the same way that, that any, you know, honest judge would have done in 1902. We're still deciding whether or not things are constitutional according to the United States constitution. And so there's, there's something very basically conservative 
about our managers in relationship to our political order. That is not even the case with a place like Canada, which has undergone a very obvious constitutional change in the past 50 years with its relationship to the British crown, with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and then with the way that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is interpreted under other imperatives that have especially a very American, very racially loaded political discussion that they did not have that allows you to tear down statues of John MacDonald, as we mentioned, but not to criticize Trudeau. And so those things which have which are the case in America are they're, they're going to be presented as conservative just because it's so useful. Right. If America were some sort of, you know, religiously and ethnically, not just racially, but ethnically homogeneous place forever and ever and ever, it would be harder to do. You, if you have mass media and you have democratic traditions, it's just a really great host for a managerial system that needs money and people to get things done. We have a lot of people, we have a lot of money. Managers can get a lot of things done here. So they have hollowed out our industrial base. We are like addicted to fentanyl and other things that are killing us, but there's still a lot of us and we still have a lot of money that we can both make for other people and offer. So as a slave population, it's still attractive, right? It's still very attractive. So that is why even if we're entering, you know, a multipolar world where we're not able to stop Russia from doing what it wants, we're still important to the managers. Where does that get us though? So, I mean, I'm, I'm not like in any kind of disagreement, but I am kind of yeah. in a little bit of a, so what aside from, Oh, I guess that's hopeful ish. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it, it's not, I, I sympathize with Burnham because I, <laughs> Burnham starts out managerial revolution by saying, I'm not asking whether these things are good or bad. I'm just trying to say whether they're so. Right. Okay. Because, because any, anything that is going to be good or that is, that is going to be good. Let's just stop there. Anything that is going to be good is going to have to be built on a foundation of knowledge. So it's not just that I, that I want certain things to be the case, or I'm attached to certain things, but I need to know what is before I can know what to do. And if I don't understand, for example, how useful the United States still is to managers who may or may not be nominally American, but who are certainly profiting off Americans, the wars they engage in, the things they still produce, their existence as a consumer base, whatever the case may be, then I don't understand. It. I mean, saying that like, well, we're just, we're just going to collapse. Well, <laughs> that didn't even happen like on some kind of, you know, Mad Max or, you know, the postman kind of level for Argentina. Okay. Argentina, which has always been kind of an outpost of the West, really. I mean, it's just, it's way down there, hard to get to, doesn't matter that much in the whole scheme of things. That didn't even happen in Argentina. It's not like life reverted to, you know, pre-Columbian Stone Age subsistence level in Argentina after 2001. So thinking about America as if somehow that's going to happen to America is unrealistic if you understand how useful this population is to the regime. Also, I mean, just, just a, an, a potentially expanding economic zone, right? Why, why is our southern border the, the constant place of inflow? Not, I mean, it's not even, I mean, like saying like, 
oh yeah, there, there are Mexicans coming over the border. It's not 1916 anymore. <laughs> There's a good chance they're not Mexican. There's a good chance they're not even from anywhere in the Americas. There's a good chance that the guy walking across the Mexican border as we're recording this is Sudanese or Nigerian, uh, for goodness sake. Those inflows, the reason that they're happening and the reason that no one is worked up about them, like they're worked up about Zelensky and Putin, is because the media is not paying attention to them. Yes. Because, yeah, because, because that is not actually useful for you to know. To the management. It to is useful for me to know, but it's not useful it's to the management. It's very useful yeah. for you to know yeah. for all kinds of reasons, but it's not useful to the management. So the, the integrity of your own borders are not as useful to the management as the integrity of the, you know, the northern and eastern borders of Ukraine right now. So the foundation of having some true knowledge is the only way to begin to reassert sovereignty in your own locality. That is what you yeah. can do. Right. And from this and from what you just said, um, a slave who knows his true value to the slave owner is in some ways no longer a slave. Uh, once yeah, you really yeah. can understand what you're worth, you have right. something to work with. And I don't know that this next point is, right. is completely connected, but I'm getting it from you today that managerialism is socialism, is Marxism, and that these are really not able to be disconnected, which brings me all the way back to a Chris Rosebro. I don't know if you know his name, a point he had brought up. Way back in the day, connection between Peter Drucker and the church growth movement as Marxism in the church. And uh, again, management uh, being what it is, that brings me back then to a question I didn't ask earlier. You know, what's the difference between a pastor and a manager? Because, well, these days, I'm not sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So let me end on Drucker and management theory, but let me start with the way that you, the way that you started out which I think, I think that what, what we are doing here, if nothing else, is that we are helping people to begin to be free because a lot of the rhetoric, not only rhetoric, but even planning that I see in opposition to our managers, the holders of the levers of power in our regime is I think fundamentally slave thinking. How can I make more money how can I, you know, and how can, how can I, how can I fit in better as a cog? The problem there is not that money would not be useful or certain social positions would not be useful. Certain political positions would not be useful to your family, to your community, to your church. They can be useful. The problem is that involvement with our regime is at some level within any particular part of it, utterly compromising. That is the role of blackmail. That's why you can find out who gave to the truckers, but you can't find out who was involved with Epstein and assorted Maxwell's. Okay. Because being compromised is in the nature of the regime. They may, they may secure things that are sexually compromising. They may use your internet history to be compromising, but they want you to be compromised in order to be part of them. That is why you find people so gravely compromised so frequently in government. And there are lots of things we could, historical instances we can talk about as we go, as we go forward there as examples. That, that being compromised is what enables you to be a manager and to be trustworthy as a manager 
but notice that the managers themselves are not, they're not free men. Okay. They, they exercise power within certain parameters. Joe Biden has to pretend he actually knows what, uh, you know, a, a male to female transsexual is and cares and loves it and thinks it's the best thing in the world for the American military. I mean, you know, I mean, he's, he's just kind of a, he's kind of a guy from Delaware. These are not, <laughs> these are not wholehearted, you know, believing progressives in the same way you might get in like a Seattle or something. So, so, you know, the manager has to lie to himself too, at the end of the day. So he's not free. So what we want is some degree of sovereignty in the various realms of our life. I can't be obsessed with how I feel about things, which is what I'm conditioned by media to do. I need to think first about what is. So that's why we have to start with what is, whether it's depressing or not. I mean, how I feel about it really honestly doesn't matter on some level. It just doesn't matter. If I realize that managerialism is dominant, then I will also recognize it in the church. And so this is where I, what I find most significant about church growth theory in the church is not its use in evangelism tactics, which is what it was originally intended for. Not, not in terms of Peter Drucker, who is a management theorist, properly speaking, but as a way of especially in third world countries and very specifically in India, that people would come into the church in socially homogenous groups. So in India, that's usually a caste or a subcaste. In the United States, that was thought of in marketing terms as very classically Saddleback Sam, who would go to Saddleback Church in Southern California. And he was profile. I mean, it's just a marketing profile for who goes to your church. And there's something realistic about that, about human groups not existing in utter unimaginable diversity in a social setting. There might be a church that has Rwandans and Guyanese and Indonesians and white Americans in it, but I bet you they all make roughly the same amount of money or at least aspire to. So homogeneity exists in all human social groups along whatever various axes of analysis that's that's the basic insight of church growth theory to begin with. That's not how it was appropriated. And the basic way in which managerialism accepts, let's say, some Marxist premises is that it accepts that socialized control is optimal. And so in the church, that's going to mean that the pastor is the ultimate manager. So that's also why in very recent history, really, churches have scaled to sizes that they, they never were before. There are very few exceptions in the 19th and early 20th centuries where you have a few churches in America that are over 200 people on a Sunday. It's very unusual. <laughs> it's very, very highly unusual because the basic insight is that you can't scale church. You have to start new churches beyond a certain number because the pastor simply cannot care or the pastors simply cannot care for enormous numbers. So you'll get a couple churches in any given denomination that have maybe more than 500 people on a Sunday, but that's very, very, very rare. Well, those would be like downtown, right? Those would be downtown churches. And that, that pastor is 
He's a bishop. Is going to be. Yeah. I mean, he's he's kind of a bishop. Yeah. I mean, he'll have some assistant, but it, it's just it's just highly unusual. Okay. Whereas now it's like aspirational and obvious that even if you have multiple congregations of people on a Sunday, that you would do multi-site church and that that's all functionally the same church. That's all, that's an application. I think, I think in this Rosebro is wrong. Managers are not the same thing as Marxists. Okay. There I is a centralized. That necessarily then. That's maybe more. Yeah. Than no, yeah. I, I am familiar with his discussion of that. Okay. Drucker, Drucker is not a Marxist. Drucker is an, is an, is a, a European import to the United States of management theory in Drucker's specific case derived out of Austrian economics and not, not in its kind of incarnation in the Mises Institute, but with a guy named Josef Schumpeter who had certain insights about how to manage capitalism and, and how capitalism functioned. It's an import of certain ways of management theory. Notice that the United States is the epicenter of management thinking in the 20th century. And we have exported that along with like Coca-Cola and McDonald's and rock and roll to the rest of the world, such that there are now European business schools, Russian business schools, Chinese business schools. And a business school is not about how to like sell things more effectively necessarily. It's fundamentally about the discipline as a discipline of management. So applied to the church, that means that I need to think about the people in my church, not as individual souls. And I'm engaged in caring for their souls. I'm thinking about them as giving units, as maybe tithing units, as attendances, as, okay, I, I moved this around. I added a 4 p.m. Saturday service. This is what happened. That the, that the realities in the kingdom of God are fundamentally not natural realities, the way they're portrayed in the Bible, where everything is like a parable related to agriculture, right? Very basically, or some endeavor over which humans have a limited amount of control, like fishing. Okay. I, I can't control exactly how many fish there are on the sea. Now it is, it is an enterprise, more like an industrial enterprise where I turn things on and off. And so I turn this on, I get 400 more people. I turn this off. I close that site. I go to this other site, or now I'm doing video preaching at the multi-site. Okay. So I'm basically like a master manipulator of budgets, people, programs, et cetera, rather than I'm a guy, I have this many souls, I'm answerable for this many souls. And so I am their father in the spirit in the large catechism, just like they have a father in the blood who cares for their bodies. So that's the difference between a pastor and a manager that's going to get blurred as management thinking becomes also part of the church, just like it's already become part of American business, American statecraft, lots of other things in American life where management thinking is totally dominant. That is going to migrate into the church and obviously has. Is there anything we didn't talk about today that you wanted to get to? No, because there's, there, there, there's always next time which is what I love about the show. <laughs> and the other examples I was going to use are good examples for a discussion of sovereignty, because what we're going to, what we're going to do a little bit next time. And so progress into discussion of not the run-up to the first world war. That's what we'll do a little bit of, but the effect of the first world war proper, because it's something that like reading Burnham writing in 1941, just before the United States enters the Second World War, when you go back and you read how people that lived through it 
talked about the run-up, the actuality, and the aftermath of the First World War. That for them, as in Burnham's analysis of the managerial revolution, that for them is the real breaking point. The Second World War is then a continuation of the same dynamics. It is not a morally or historically unique phenomenon. So we want to know what those dynamics were that that broke so many things for the people that went through them in the First World War, so that then we can see the other events in the 20th century, and then going down to our own time over the course of the year in a new light. Well, would it be jumping too far ahead to ask if this so-called Third World War that we're on the cusp of right now, is this a different dynamic? No, because... Any of these wars, and for instance, like the, the German historian Ernst Nolte, N-O-L-T-E, so like, like Nick Nolte, same name, he describes what happens between 1914 and 1945 as the European Civil War. You could see them from Burnham's perspective as these are all not, not glitches, but legitimate functions of managerial states working with, for or against each other at various times, that they pursue war in these ways, that they whip up enormous populations, and that there are ramifications economically, at least, if not militarily worldwide for everybody, when these enormous, extremely scalable managerial systems have some kind of internal or external conflict that causes them to go to war. So that if we went to war with Russia now, God forbid, if we went to war with Russia now, we would be engaged in a conflict that would, in its, in, in its dynamics, look a lot like the First and Second World Wars. Right. A European civil war, That's notwithstanding right. that the founder of the 1619 Project is insisting that Europe is not a continent at all and, has, <laughs> <laughs> and, and all these things that matter that have been coming out. Um, I, I want to I stay on Russia for one more moment here kind yeah, of sure. to, to wrap up. And I'm not quite sure why, other than that, it, it is in the news. Um, but this idea that uh, Russia is a, like, for coming what you just said, it's a management system that is finding itself in conflict with another management system. You want to call it the EU, want to call it NATO, want to call it the UN. I'm not sure at this point, you know, all that. Yeah. And yet they're selling gas to each other. And, you know, certain things, <laughs> certain things are not yep. in the SWIFT system, but certain yep. things are. Right. right. So yeah. it's just riff on that for a sec. So, okay. So I, what I, what I see is fundamentally at stake long-term, presuming we don't, we don't get engaged in any kind of boots on the ground media, media noticeable way in Ukraine is that we are shifting and, and this is with the ascent of the World Economic Forum, where mm. Putin and Xi Jinping have both spoken numerous times about the need to have a multipolar world. The precise meaning of that has never been clear because it has to be worked out by force. That's historically pretty normal, honestly. But it's not as if Putin or Xi Jinping represents some kind of conservative, you know, in and of themselves, you know, based political order in opposition to us. There are distinctions. There is an attachment to Eastern Orthodoxy of its own nationalistically specific kind. We've mentioned before that that split between the ecumenical patriarch in Constantinople, who's Greek, and who is much more aligned with the West, NATO, and our social and political order, like Pope Francis and Moscow. 
So there, it's not like there are no differences, but it's not as if you have on the one hand, like Christian world order fighting like non-Christian world order, or as I see more, more obviously with a lot of our, you know, Lutheran pastors posting stuff about Ukraine on social media, as if we have like, you know, some sort of morally pure, you can hear where the narrative of the second world war is really important for getting Americans excited about things, morally pure, sort of open, self-sacrificing good guys, rebel alliance in Lucasfilm's terms, fighting against bad emperor, bad guy autocrat. On the other hand, everyone, <laughs> everyone has shaken Klaus Schwab's hand and everyone is somehow invested in selling gas and having money move through transnational markets in some kind. The debates are, and, and the things up in the air in these kinds of political conflicts are about you know, what your basket of reserve currencies is going to be, or, you know, what, how we're going to process international bank transfers, stuff like that. It's not a fundamental reordering of the world, such as many of us might actually desire. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.